Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, evening, and joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, it's Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, it's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? Good, yeah, I am slightly off kilter for the fact that we're recording this at a, a reasonable hour, as opposed to our usual schedule of recording in the middle of the night for you. Mm, yeah, for kind of a little bit of inside baseball information for our listeners, we normally record this at like, I say record, we kind of hook up on Skype at like midnight Greenwich Mean Time on a Sunday night and then just gabble for about an hour and then record leading to kind of quite tired times. But now it's kind of like a normal time for both of us and it's a Saturday. I don't really know what's what anymore. What I do know is that we're doing our very last artist profile of the year. It's been a fun little project, hasn't it, Ed? Yeah, it has. It's been really nice considering artists that I love uh, or artists such as Madonna whose work I haven't really considered or at least whose cinematic work I haven't really considered before and kind of really looking at it in terms of our our five uh, little categories. Mm. And it's cool the way that when we started this I think we had the first three planned out didn't we and then after those three I think we both kind of felt like it was going in a little bit of an obvious direction and perhaps some of the ones we had penciled in to do later on in the year suddenly found themselves replaced by more left-field choices. Yeah, and I think that adjustment has made it, certainly for me, it's made it more interesting. Like, it would have been fun and easy to do an episode on John Carpenter or Steven Soderbergh, who were mooted at one point. But I feel like doing someone like Eddie Murphy, whose career isn't perhaps considered in great great detail these days, because basically people who are maybe not given that much consideration, I think it does it does force us to do the, the legwork and to really kind of think about these these artists in a different way. Mm. And we're going to round off these artist profiles for 2015 with a look at a British director who is hugely interesting and someone that as soon as we kind of both struck upon it, it seemed like a really cool thing to do. Because uh, who are we going to be talking about, Ed? We are going to be talking about the work of Michael Winterbottom. And it's he's a kind of fascinating character, isn't he? Because the two things that set him apart from most other British directors and a lot of other directors is a he's incredibly prolific he has made 25 features in 20 years which is kind of that's not quite kind of Takashi Miike uh, output (laughs) um, but that's pretty decent more than a film a year and he's also hugely versatile he's done whilst not quite in the kind of masterpiece territory in each genre he has certainly kind of explored a lot of different techniques and a lot of different kind of areas, approaches to making films and kind of stylistic choices, uh, technological choices. He's not afraid to kind of explore those, is he? No, and he is someone who I think stands out in British cinema in that he doesn't, he, he tackles some of the things that you would expect a British director to do, sort of like doing some films that are maybe social realists, some that are adaptations of classic classic literature, which are very much standards of, of British cinema in general, but he approaches them with kind of a disregard for the traditional ways in which those films are are tackled, which I think is one of the things that really has allowed him to stand out uh, over the course of his career. Mm. 
Well, we'll jump right in with his breakthrough film. It wasn't, certainly wasn't his first film. He kind of spent a bit of time on television. And he made a couple of low-key features. But his breakthrough was Jude, the film that was the first of three Thomas Hardy adaptations that he's done. You're being rather confrontational. No, I was just wondering why you bother to go to church at all. Because a part of me is still a superstitious backward country girl. You mean like me? I didn't know you were a girl. What do you think attracts him to Thomas Hardy's stuff? Is it he's a miserable bastard like Thomas Hardy? I always hated reading Thomas Hardy at school. <laughs> um, I think it, it could very well be he's a middle, miserable bastard, although a lot of his later work has kind of a playfulness that I think belies that. I think in terms of you know looking at, at Jude and also considering some of his, his other adaptations, uh, I think what he is drawn to is that there is a, a sensual quality to Thomas Hardy that a lot of that gets lost in other adaptations. For example, if you compare it to the uh, Thomas Vinterberg version of Far From the Madding Crowd, which came out this year, which is very kind of stately and reserved and kind of boring in in a lot of places. If you look at Jude, it's a film that places a lot of emphasis on the sexuality of the characters and the kind of the earthiness of their experience. I think that that is a quality that he he tries to bring out in all of his adaptations of Hardy's work that I think tends to get lost in a lot of other adaptations. And it's it's kind of all appropriate, isn't it? It's not like he's making some attempt to kind of sex up this kind of austere property that's been adapted many times before just to kind of make it interesting and modern. No, yeah, he's he's drawing from the text in terms of adding his own spin on it. You know, he does... For example, Jude starts with a, a prologue shot in stark black and white and which seems to draw on things like Italian neorealism and is very uh, self-consciously arty in a way that I think a lot of those kind of adaptations of classic literature that that tend not to be, you know, is very much drawing attention to its own visuals and its own presentation in a way that you don't really see a lot in, in that vein of British cinema. And I think that that is his main input into it is that he does try and break out of the this this particular tradition mm. and th- those kind of films those kind of fairly prestigious literary adaptations are often seen by directors as kind of shop windows to better things because those films let's not be around the bush are very successful internationally they're very easy to sell abroad a lot of kind of uh, foreign territories lap that out because it's their idea of a particular sense of britishness or um, it's what they kind of come to expect from a British film. But Michael Winterbottom strayed away from from kind of uh, taking the big jobs that kind of flooded in after that. He kind of focused on smaller features, didn't he? Yeah, and he also jumped about a lot in different genres. We were talking, he did a film called Butterfly's Kiss, which is kind of, a, I think you described it as a, a neo-noir set in Blackburn. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like it, it sounds. I've not seen the film, but yeah, it sounds like Natural Born Killers, but yeah, shot on the motorways of Blackburn, which <laughs> is about as glamorous as it gets. Yeah, it really lends itself to a tale of, of violence and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he he was someone who jumped around in style a lot. Did stuff like Welcome to Sarajevo, The Claim, his other his kind of second Thomas Hardy adaptation, where. He and uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce, who was who was his screenwriter on a lot of his projects throughout that time, repurposed that story, which is the story of the mayor of Casterbridge, I believe, and mm-hmm. set it in in the American frontier, 
and made this very big widescreen essentially version of this story and and kind of painted it on a very big canvas yeah he he instead of kind of plowing that particular furrow he decided to try a lot of different things and a lot of those things didn't really get wide distribution and weren't widely seen but he he there is a a restlessness to his career that you can see from pretty much as soon as he he started it mm. that jump from jude to the claim is actually quite fascinating the claim is is uh, the, my first kind of exposure to Michael Winterbottom. It's the first film of his that I saw. And it is The Mayor of Casterbridge as if it's been told and done on the set of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which mm. is, you know, a very interesting way to approach that material. And I'm kind of surprised it didn't do very well because it's got a lot of kind of names and stuff in it. But then I'm also not surprised as well because it's quite bleak and <laughs> kind of remittingly kind of harsh in its presentation. And uh, I hear that the uh, the production of the film is actually a bit of a nightmare. And uh, if the rumours are to be believed, Michael Winterbottom got frostbite on the set of that, which, you know, that's some serious kind of Apocalypse Now stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think he's often said that Werner Herzog is pretty much his one of his idols when it comes to directing. That's one of the reasons why he doesn't like to do storyboarding and things like that, because Herzog doesn't really storyboard any of his films, or at least kind of didn't. Uh, I don't know if that's still the case anymore. But I think that that may have been the appeal of something like The Claim, where you're taking, A, you're basically radically reinventing a, a classic of English literature, placing it in a different country, in an entirely different cultural context, and B, you are creating a nightmare shooting scenario that could get people killed. Mm. There's nothing more kind of Herzogian than that. Mm. Talk about using Herzog as a, as a role model. He has been described several times as uh, the British Stanley Kubrick, which is weird because I always assume that Stanley Kubrick was the British Stanley Kubrick who lived here for so long, <laughs> wouldn't leave because he was too scared of flying in a plane. <laughs> Do you think that's accurate or is that a kind of a lazy summation of someone um, who just kind of hops between genres? He's certainly a little bit more prolific than Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I mean, the the, the the thing with Kubrick is he was someone who tried a lot of different genres and mastered pretty much all of them. Mm. Whereas I feel like, like Kub- like um like Herzog, Winterbottom jumps between different genres and leaps in kind of with both feet, but doesn't real doesn't necessarily deliver a classic each time. But he always does something interesting with the genre, and he's less he's less of a perfect creative force than uh, Kubrick was. And you know, if you're gonna make if you're gonna compare him to another artist, which I always kind of feel is a sign of an inferiority complex about British filmmakers is they have to be the British someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, Ken Russell was the British Fellini, Shane Meadows was the British Scorsese. But you know, if you're going to compare him to someone else, I, I think he probably is closer to uh, a Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Wait, have I said his name right? I know I've got his name wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Okay, yeah, you're closer to a Fassbinder or uh, someone like a Richard Linklater, someone who is happy to dabble in lots of different genres, maybe doesn't have the strongest authorial stamp in that the, the films may not all kind of connect to each other very clearly but they clearly have a vision in the each of their films you don't get the sense that they're going through the motions they are trying to do something interesting every time they tackle something mm-hmm. i like to think of him as the lancashire howard hawks <laughs> because if you're going to talk about someone who did a lot of genre films and did pretty well in all of them howard hawks not a bad place to start mm, yeah who uh, certainly seems to conform to the idea that a good film is Three good scenes and no bad ones, <laughs> with, with some with some exceptions. Yeah, yeah. 
So that was his breakthrough. He's going to talk about his most successful film now, which when you told me, because Ed uh, is the box office guru uh, of this podcast, uh, dear listeners, when you told me what it was, I was really surprised. What is it? It is the uh, Angelina Jolie vehicle, A Mighty Heart. What message do you have for the people of Pakistan? Danny was, uh, Danny was killed this, this month, um, but also 10 other people were killed by terrorists. And they were all Pakistani. So so they are suffering as much as we are, right? Yeah. It's the, the Daniel Pearl story, isn't it? That? Yeah, it is. The, the story of the journalist Daniel Pearl who was taken hostage and killed uh, in Pakistan. But mainly it is about... The, the story is primarily about his wife who kind of travels to Pakistan to try and figure out what's happened to him and her grief after learning that he has uh, has uh, passed away. Mm. I was kind of surprised to learn that, mainly because, A, I kind of didn't even know it was a Michael Winterbottom film, which is a <laughs> a great sign of how versatile and prolific you are, that you can make films that are your most successful and kind of slip out without me even noticing. And, yeah, secondly, because even if it was, it's not a film that gets talked about a great deal. No, it's one of those films that kind of falls into that category of Oscar also rams where it was really talked up quite a lot in advance of award season but then didn't really get nominated for anything and so was kind of forgotten I think it got nominated for a Golden Globe and that was pretty much it and you know the tourists got nominated for Golden Globe so it doesn't really mean much but that mm. it very much was a a film that was sort of a big deal but then people more or less forgot about once the award season was over hmm and was it the same? This is, am I right in thinking it's the same film that Angelina Jolie got a bit of controversy directed her way because the person she's playing is like mixed race? Yeah, that was definitely a part of it. And that was, uh, I would say, probably quite warranted criticism <laughs> because, yeah, she is clearly not mixed race. And that is, that is something that I feel would be a much bigger deal now than it would have, than it was in 2007. That's the sort of thing where it, kind of got talked about at the time but wasn't really a big deal because obviously she's a huge star and it was being seen as this real break for her playing this part that was very unglamorous and that was really focused on her trying to communicate the depths of this woman's despair particularly in the scene when she finds out that that Daniel Pearl has died and she just basically just completely breaks down and it's actually quite hard to watch uh, mm. it is a really really good performance from her but at the same time when you consider the fact that she is not mixed race and she's playing a mixed race character it's the sort of thing that you that probably should have been a bigger deal than it actually was for her star power and the fact that those sort of conversations didn't really happen as much then as they do now because of the the kind of the rise of social media in the intervening eight years mm-hmm. well that backfired on emma stone this year didn't it yeah that was a slightly m- more minor situation in that she wasn't re- playing a real person yeah, you know, if you're playing a real person and you're definitely not the same race that they were, then yeah, I feel that that t- takes you even to even worse and murkier territory. Mm. I think post nine eleven, something like the Mighty Heart is 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 something that needs to be made and is kind of perhaps seen as a rather spiky kind of political subject matter. But he's never really kind of shied away from that, has he? I mean, he did Welcome to Sarajevo, like just months after. There was a war there. He actually mm. shot it on location in Sarajevo, and it really wasn't that long after it was all. It all kind of died down. 
he kind of tipped up with his camera. He also did stuff like the Road to Guantanamo in this world, all very kind of like stark and uh, yeah, kind of angular post nine eleven films. Do you think that's what attracted him to a mighty heart? I, I get the impression that it was an Angelina Jolie project and she asked him to do it rather than the other way around. I think that is a big part of it. I think his films, they're either very strong, they're either very based in character or they're very based in kind of politics and exploring an idea. And that's a film that allows for both of those sort of things. It's kind of a nice meshing of the two separate halves of his his career because that is a very strong character study of a woman going into a very hostile situation and trying to figure out what happened to her husband and, and the the in, intense emotional pain that she goes through as a result. But also it allows him to explore the social and political situation in Pakistan and how America's actions in the, the war on terror impact its citizens out in the world. And mm. I think that which is something he obviously did in, in Road to Guantanamo. And that is very much something that he seems very interested in and, and the combination of those two things i think would have made that irresistible as would you know the the chance to i think there's there's something to the challenge of taking what could be a very glossy star vehicle starring you know the, one of the most famous women in the world and one of the most famous actresses in the world and saying i'm going to make you look terrible <laughs> i'm going to make you look like a real person going through real intense and horrible emotions Mm, mm. Uh, yeah he hasn't shied away from political stuff after that either he did the shock doctrine which is the kind of film adaptation of the naomi klein book i think it was a documentary i've not seen that one but then he's also kind of recently did the emperor's new clothes uh which was the russell brand documentary so he's kind of not afraid to kind of uh, throw his hat in there is he which is probably what sets him apart from someone like howard hawks as i compared him to before yeah i think that his his uh, prolificness is probably the thing that allows him to do that because he can do something like the shock doctrine, which is a very aggressive and very com- confrontational story or Road to Guantanamo or a mighty heart, not a mighty wind, as I've been wanting to say <laughs> the entire time that we've been talking about this. Uh, but then like the next minute, it's like, oh, he'll do a- another film with Steve Coogan and it'll be all fine. You know, mm. those those are kind of his... His two modes is that, you know, because he'll have something that's more more commercial or more accessible coming up just around the bend. And he always seems to have be thinking about his next project, even as he's working on his current one. I think that that means that he doesn't get bogged down or get labeled as a political filmmaker. He is so versatile and prolific that he doesn't kind of get labeled as one thing, even though, as you say, that strain of political work is incredibly strong in his in his oeuvre mm-hmm. and speaking of light-hearted things to take your mind off <laughs> a serious project uh, we're going to talk about his oddity now um and uh, he's done quite a lot of weird stuff but we're probably going to kind of start with the weirdest uh, we're going to talk about a cock and ball story i'm in the dark i do a good owl mm. shylock is my name uh, yeah. did you see him in that yeah i do a good opportunity too but I don't do it in front of people all the time. Because you don't have the confidence, I understand I do that. Have but I feel like, like I can get up there and I do it. I can do Al Pacino. You do it, I can do like Al Pacino in The Godfather. Oh, he wasn't great. You know, I'm, my friend, you are you. When The Godfather speaks like that, you disrespect no, no, the family. No, in The Godfather, he talks like this. No, in The Godfather, he speaks like that, you disrespect the no, family. No, in The Godfather, you have no look depth about to the way you speak. The, yeah, because there was no depth in those days. In those you days, know, he you talked like this. You sound like a cartoon. You sound like a cartoon now. Which is 
kind of meta kind of commentary on itself. It's quite hard to describe. It's basically a guy making a film of an adaptation, an unadaptable book. And the film is a film of people trying to adapt a book that's not adaptable, but then it is also an adaptation of the book. And then everyone in it plays themselves. (laughs) And including there is a Michael Winterbottom in it as well. Hmm. Played, but I can't remember who plays him in it. Isn't it the bald-headed guy from the thick of it? No. Alexander McQueen? Yeah. Same? No. No, I'll have to look it up. But yeah, it's it's a very, very uh, peculiar proposition, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's also... As strange as it is, it's also the only logical way that you could tell that story, the, the story of, of Tristram Shandy and the Lawrence Stern book, which is was itself a kind of very advanced postmodern novel, famously having on one page just a blank page, a page that had no text, but was just kind of black space, which is adapted into the film in perhaps the most literal sense by just having a black screen for a little bit, but... <laughs> in taking on a subject that is meant to be unadaptable and is obviously therefore a challenge, he kind of, instead of trying to simplify it, he he and, again, Frank Cottrell Boyce, who I believe it was their last or one of their last collaborations, um, they, they just add complications to it. They make it more meta than it was in the first place. And I think that is what makes it such an interesting and such a, an enjoyable film is that on the one level you get to see this insane attempt to take a novel that like you say is considered adaptable but then they layer on you know stuff like the relationship between steve coogan and rob bryden and their uh contentious friendship which is something that they have revisited over the course of several tv series since then and mm-hmm. i think that that is is the, the kind of the key to it is that they adapt this very classic work of english literature in the kind of the spirit in which it was written which is to be very playful and very uh, self-reflexive. Mm. It was Jeremy Northam who played the director in okay. Cock and Bull Story. One time, potential next James Bond when okay. uh, when Pierce Brosnan kind of uh, vacated it. But anyway, yeah, it's it works for all its faults, but it wasn't particularly successful because I think people just didn't know what the fuck it was. Yeah, I mean, even uh, even as someone who likes it and, and enjoys it a great deal, it is very very hard to kind of get to the nub of it. You know, if you were to describe it, it's like, well, it's kind of a a, a period adaptation of this classic book, but a young boy gets his knob stuck in a window, <laughs> and at one point, Steve Coogan is upside down in a womb, and Gillian Anderson's in it, but only very briefly, and then there's a joke at the very end about how she's only in it very briefly, and it's seems to be constantly on the verge of collapsing in on itself, and yeah, it is. It's a very hard film to. It's, a, it's, it's kind of like the Matrix. You have to experience it for yourself. Yeah. But the cool thing about it is that it did give birth to the two TV series, also films, uh, The Trip and The Trip to Italy, which are kind of sequels to A Cock and Ball Story in that they feature strange, kind of exaggerated, but also kind of not exaggerated versions of Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon uh, playing themselves doing ridiculous things like travelling around the Lake District writing observers for, uh, writing columns for the Observer Food Supplement, which is a setup that you would never think of for a film. But somehow those two two films and the TV series that are kind of the expanded versions of those are hugely enjoyable. And uh, from a kind of perspective, distancing yourself from the fact that you are watching actors acting as versions of themselves, fascinating. Mm, yeah, and, and you can really see the connection between those 
films and a cock and ball story because not only do they feature the same actors playing themselves there are lots of scenes in a cock and ball story which feel very much like they are laying the groundwork for the trip even though obviously those films were made or the film and the tv series were made years apart and i don't think there was ever any plan for them to do a follow-up you know there are lots of scenes where um like coogan and bryden will just be in their makeup chairs and they'll just be talking to each other and they're just sparring off of each other over the fact and the fact that they have a real friendship and a, a collaboration in in real life going back to uh, at least marion and jeff which uh, rob bryden starred in and steve coogan produced so there is a a real warmth to it and i feel like that is why they are able to push each other so far in just mocking each other's work <laughs> and uh entire public persona in ways which I think if other people did it in other contexts, would actually seem quite vicious and mean. Mm. It's it's kind of part of this comedy strand that's kind of that comedy of honesty and playing exaggerated versions of yourself that, that we see in stuff like Louis and Marin, and more recently in kind of Master of None, which is um, and that, this is kind of the British version of that, isn't it? I guess. Yeah, it definitely feels like that, and I think that. It's also heavily improvisational, which is something that is very, very prevalent in American comedy, but not so much in English comedy, it seems. Mm. Um, like, obviously, you have like your, your Peter Hook and Dudley Moore back in the 60s and stuff, but it's it's not something that has ever been, seems, has never been that central. It, it, there is more, I think, in British comedy, more of an attention to what writers are doing than to what the performers can bring to it. And so the idea of building an entire TV series about around okay we have a very rough outline we have these two actors we're just going to sit them in a restaurant eating and have them just talk about whatever and hopefully it'll be funny Mm. is kind of something that's very rare in in british comedy and even rarer that it actually works really really well yeah we don't really have that improv tradition do we we're not kind of that second city groundlings ucb thing it's and like when you say you're bit i think you're being a bit generous to to dudley moore and peter cook like as in they were asked to deliver a, an out comedy album and just got drunk in a studio for two hours <laughs> um it's not quite reading a del close manual but yeah, yeah it's uh it's you know though they, they, i love those trip things i mean i could watch them all day i don't, I don't know if they're doing another one but uh i really hope they will it seems like the sort of thing that as long as they can think of a new place for them to go then all they really need to do is just kind of clear a block of a few weeks and just go. Yeah, because it touches like some quite, like especially Trip to Italy touches kind of like uh, quite an emotional place, I guess. Yeah, certainly the the Rob's, uh, Rob Bryden's character in that one goes through some real emotional stuff. And I feel like that's the, the, the joy of the fact they're not doing it every year. It's something they just kind of revisit whenever they feel like it is, is what makes it work so well. Like if they just revisit it at different points in their life and make it uh, Michael Winton Bottoms uh, before sunrise, <laughs> you know, every few years they just revisit them at a different point in their respective midlife crises, then mm. it could be it could be really fun and really interesting. And as long as they they have more actors that they can impersonate, <laughs> then they will they will never uh, lack for material. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about Michael Winterbottom's worst film here, which is an easy choice for us to make, because it's pretty bad. We're going to talk about nine songs. When I remember Lisa, I don't think about her clothes. I think about her smell, her taste, her skin touching mine. I don't think about where she was from, or even what she said. A film that is pretty controversial, 
because it features uh, real sex between really boring characters uh, done really tediously and for an hour, which is how long the film is, yeah, it's really, really, really gruelling to watch and not sexy in any way and pretty miserable as an experience. I thought you were going to say it was going to it was controversial because of the positive depiction of Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. <laughs> hey, that first those first two albums they did aren't bad, man. I'm telling you, especially that country yeah, album they did. But no, I mean that's I mean yeah, it's called Nine Songs because it features nine performances at live gigs by by artists as diverse as the Von Bondies and Michael Nyman. But it's you know to call it loose in its structure is kind it's kind of really tiresome i mean if you i mean the thing is they went for featuring real penetrative sex between two people and you're not going to get george clooney and meryl streep to do that (laughs) so they got two people who aren't particularly good actors i mean they're people you'd recognize the the female lead is in a couple of his films she turns up in she's steve coogan's girlfriend in the trip in the first one and uh, kieran o'brien i think the actor who British TV audiences will know from Cracker. But yeah, it's you kind of just the characters aren't particularly engaging. It's it's very kind of it's very insubstantial and you know, this probably could have been quite a good film about an intimate love affair without having to go, right, well we we actually need to genuinely see you suck him off. Um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be that way and I don't really understand what anyone was thinking. It it does seem to like we talk about his his versatility and his desire to experiment, I think you can also see in the to bring it back to the Richard Linklater thing the fact that he did a film which has exactly the same premise as Boyhood, um, some years before Boyhood came out called Every Day, mm. where he made a film with John Sim as a man in prison, and every few years they came back together to see him at a different point in his uh, in his sentence and his relations with his family. I think that's the experimental aspect of his his aesthetic his his career that kind of goes to its next logical end where he just is kind of has this idea of okay what if we monitor a relationship's development through the the kind of the two things that seem to draw these two people together which is sex and music and it's an interesting idea that really isn't very good because you say the sex itself is kind of desultory and boring to watch but also because the actors don't do enough in the non-sex scenes to really make you care about these characters. Mm, yeah, and it's not a relationship you particularly believe in. It's kind of framed by the the male character, Matt. He has gone to the Antarctica, I think, to perhaps try and forget about the relationship that's kind of over. We don't really care that it's over. We don't really care <laughs> that it's happening. And at the end, we want to fly to Antarctica to forget about it as well. Yeah, it is very much a film where the 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 contra- controversy around it and the, the premise is far more interesting to consider than the the stuff that's actually on screen mm. you know it it doesn't have like if you compare it to something like lust caution which is the the angley film that maybe has real sex in it although it's kind of disputed the the fact that that is about a relationship that's actually interesting and takes place in a context that is kind of rife with danger and intrigue that's that's more interesting and then the the possibility of the real sex the fact that it's mysterious adds like a, a free song to it of thinking is tony lung actually fucking this woman or not i don't know you know the, whereas i think the the problem with nine songs is it's very everything about it is very very blatant 
like the sex is yep they are definitely having real sex mm-hmm. and the the emotions are not couched in any kind of real subtlety the the, the dialogue is very straightforward and then every so often they just go to a live performance by a band and it's like yeah I like i like this song but then we're just going to have another boring sex scene in a few minutes <laughs> it doesn't really there's not a huge amount of there's not much there there yeah yeah I think the most shocking thing about it, watching it now, is seeing the characters being able to smoke in pubs, <laughs> which, which is something that I, I was like, oh, Jesus. I mean, I didn't think twice, uh, as I was reminded when researching this, Britain's first ever and only ever kind of like on-screen ejaculation. I mean, that was that just was like, pardon the phrase, but like water off a duck's back. Um, <laughs> but smoking indoors, good grief. Think of the children. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird... Uh time capsule in that because they have all these bands which were super important in the kind of indie culture for a very very short period of time immortalized in this film alongside the last vestiges of england as a place where um pubs were pleasant places to be because they didn't reek of bo <laughs> yeah absolutely look a little bit of uh, uh listener feedback when i talked about i was watching nine songs Friend of the show and listener, Richard Hammond, hello, sent me a tweet saying, fun, true story. My partner took a first date to see Nine Songs because she didn't know what it was about. <laughs> Can you think of any worse first date movies than Nine Songs? Caligula? <laughs> yeah, the extended cut of Caligula would be bad, but and it's longer as well. And there's a bit where you see a, a dwarf being sucked off in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get your money's worth in that film. There is yeah. a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Um, it's very much the uh, the I am the resurrection of <laughs> films, because obviously that is the film that you get the most value from if you put it on in a jukebox. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I I took a girl to see Wild Wild West as a youth, and that, I mean, it was bad because it was Wild Wild West, but it was better than the day, you have to say. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst thing about that is that if uh, she found all of Kenneth Branagh's hilarious racism funny, Mm. That that would have been the real kind of topper on the thing, as as in the case of, uh, for example, when I was working at the the showroom in Sheffield, a girl once came up to the box office and tried flirting with me by talking about the new Tarantino film, which at the time was Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> and then like asking what it was about, and I said, oh, you know, it's about you know like the, the World War Two and the you know the Jews and the Holocaust, and then her next gambit was, I think that actually happened, <laughs> it was like. <laughs> the Holocaust. <laughs> she said, "Yeah, yeah." How do you know? Were you there? <laughs> no, but there's a lot of evidence. At which point, the conversation kind of petered out. Yeah, I think that would have been probably had that happened after seeing the film. I think that probably would have been one of the more awkward dating experiences. Yeah, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Like if you came out of nine songs and you turned to the date, and instead of saying oh, that was kind of the most awkward experience of my life, they were like, mm, I really like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club now. <laughs> You'd be like, what the fuck, dude? That was the thing that pushed me over the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, nine songs, man. Not a good movie. And not even an interesting failure. Just just not good. But anyway, let's move on from there and talk about Michael Winterbottom's best film. So I know it's a personal favourite of yours, Ed, and a film I enjoy very much. What, what is it? It is 24-Hour Party People. What are you doing? <coughs> Recording. Silence. You're recording silence? Well, now I'm recording Tony 
fucking Wilson. Um, we want you to produce a band for us. Who's us? Uh, factory Records. Right, 50 quid an hour. Plus, I want to be a partner in the company. See ya. <coughs> See ya. Yay. It's, it is a fairly kind of electrifying tour through what is a fascinating kind of time in British culture. Yeah, I mean, this was the first of his films that I remember seeing. I don't know if I'd seen any of the others before that, but this was the one that really caught my attention because it came out at the time that I was starting to kind of really get into music and the, that whole Madchester scene was something that I was kind of exploring through the aforementioned Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and stuff. And so at the time that I was starting to get into this music, this you know incredibly entertaining biopic that dealt exclusively with the kind of the build-up to that era and the the bands that were hugely important in making that happen comes out and and obviously my way in was I was a huge fan of Alan Partridge and a huge Steve Coogan fan so I was like oh this is a film starring Steve Coogan and it's got all this great music in it and then you watch it and it is partly because the stories of some of the personalities involved are so huge and so exuberant and so crazy particularly all the stuff with Sean Ryder and the the fact that the Hacienda was so rife with drugs that they eventually just let the drug dealers be security. You know, mm. that whole thing is just this immensely enjoyable and crazy period that is, is kind of rife for dramatization. Mm. And it's kind of interesting for us to watch it and kind of be like, oh, wow, that's cool. I remember my university housemate was like eight years older than us. And like he went to the Hacienda on like his kind of 16th birthday and like, so to hear him talk about it, it was like this kind of mystical place that someone growing up in kind of provincial East Anglia will kind of never really understand. And I remember thinking after I saw that film, well, I wonder if that was kind of like, you know, was that really anything like that? And he was just like, yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a, that's a good representation of what it was like. It captured the energy. And it does uh, also, like A Cock and Ball Story, it has this meta aspect to it where the real life figures from that era crop up at various points such as i believe howard devoto showing up to say that a particular story didn't happen the way that they say it did in the film mm. and that adds an extra level of fun to it where they're there on one level they're admitting yeah this main stuff may not have happened how it how we're presenting it but this is how some of the people involved who have destroyed their minds through drugs and alcohol <laughs> remember it happening and that is the most entertaining way you know it's the, the whole idea of don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Mm, that was the film's Marshall McLuhan moment, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, Howard Devoto playing a janitor, to, saying that his wife didn't suck off Steve instead <laughs> of uh, Steve Coogan's character. Yeah, yeah. It was cool to see, like looking at it now, like who was in it that's gone on to kind of be something. Sean Harris, who this year was the, the, the kind of baddie in uh, in the new uh, Mission Impossible film, uh, he played. Ian Curtis. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't Sam Riley in it as well at one point? He was like a supporting character before he then went on to play Ian Curtis in Control. Yeah, and weirdly, Paddy, Paddy Considine plays Rob Gretton, uh, who mm-hmm. is Joy Division and New Order's manager. And then who plays Rob Gretton in the Joy Division film? Is it called Control? Who, play, who yeah. plays Rob Gretton in that? Can you remember? Uh, no. Yeah, it's Toby Kebbell. So both oh. both halves of the Dead Man Shoes cast both played <laughs> the same real life New Order slash Joy Division manager. That's pretty cool. 
that's pretty cool and kind of very strange bit of uh, pub quiz trivia for you. Um, in Control, there is a kind of a a, a nod to 24-hour party people because at one point Toby, Toby Kebble says to Sam Riley, could be worse, you could be in the fall. And I believe in 24-hour party people, he plays Marky Smith. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the real actor was probably in the fall. I mean, I was in the fall briefly. I was their <laughs> bass player for a couple of weeks in 2012. But, you know, who wasn't? It's the closest thing we have now to national service. That and the Sugar Babes. <laughs> yeah, the Sugar Babes in the fall. The Trigger's broom of uh, of bands. Yeah, uh, how do you think it holds up kind of now? Because it's uh, 10 years since it came out next year. Uh, is it? I thought it came out in 2002. Hey, it's uh, 14 <laughs> years since it, like next year. How do you think it holds up, Ed? Uh, I think it holds up immensely well. I think it, partly it is, you know, it, it captures the energy of that period really well. And it also is one of those films that is kind of blessed by just having a phenomenal cast of people who are either people like Steve Coogan, who I think at the time was trying very, very hard to escape being Alan Partridge. Obviously, he'd done the second series of I'm Alan Partridge and then I think was embarking on that period where he would star in like uh, around the world in 80 days and you know try and escape from it before he realized actually this is like the best thing i've ever been involved with i should probably go back to playing him um but like i think the the the, the cast and the music and everything will combine to make it you know a hugely enjoyable watch and you know very much a, a good hangout film where you can just kind of every few minutes a, a new kind of outsized character will just show up and just the, the the energy of the whole thing really carries it along, and that that's the sort of thing that doesn't really date. Mm. And it's kind of uh, one of those things that snapshots of a certain era and a time that it feels a little bit like watching a Boogie Nights or a mm. Goodfellas or something, and that it is uh, you know kind of a, something that was kind of hugely kind of exciting, but also dangerous and and over now. That that is uh, one of the the key things I do feel like it offers a, a really cool window into a particular, a very, very small, but very kind of potent period of, of, of cultural like moment, something that gave rise to a lot of really great music and a lot of, uh, and that would fundamentally kind of drive British pop music for the next 10 years or so, even, even to the extent, you know, when you get things like Oasis, which, which are kind of reactions against it, you know, kind of moving away from, dance orientated pop music towards more classic rocks it's something that it's a, a period that had a huge impact on what music in britain was for a really long time and so seeing it dramatized also in a way that really doesn't take itself very seriously that does have the awareness to just kind of poke fun at itself and the inherent weaknesses of trying to be a biopic of a uh of a man who maybe uh, over-exaggerated his own sense of importance. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. In terms of what Michael Winterbottom is doing next, the actual reason that we chose to do this is because we just, we found out what he was doing next and it was fascinating. And then we were like, oh, actually, let's do Michael Winterbottom. He's doing um, Russ and Roger, which is the story of Russ Mayer and Roger Ebert getting together to make their smutty classic uh, what's it called now? I always want to say Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. That is what it's called. Yes. Um, which is a fascinating uh, story because Roger Ebert, for those of you who know, is a widely and hugely respected film critic. Russ Mayer, a peddler of smut. Um, <laughs> shot very artfully, uh, no doubt. And with a kind of tongue 
kind of almost ripping through the side of his face. It's so far in cheek, but it's smut nonetheless. But it's a uh, yeah, Will Ferrell and Josh Gad are going to play it, and that sounds like it's going to be fascinating. It does, and it is. It it, it kind of recalls things like Twenty uh, Four Hour Party People, where you think it's such a. It's obviously less has less of a cultural impact because it was such a small kind of cult film that a lot of people kind of got keyed into later, but wasn't necessarily huge at the time. But it is something that offers a lot of opportunities for very big performances, very big moments, and just this this sense of of fun uh, from a very specific kind of cultural moment in American history and the idea of seeing them tackle the production of a film that is by all accounts insane mm. and which has lots of very fun stories in the back uh, in the kind of the the backstory of how it was made including a fairly famous one of Roger Ebert flying out to LA and um, Russ Meyer showing him his office and then him just walking in and seeing a naked woman there and Ebert just going Hollywood and just kind of like just being amazed by the uh, depravity of it all <laughs> as someone who kind of grew up in a small town outside of Chicago. And I think that those two performances could, those two performers could do a lot with those characters and Winterbottom, I think if he is in full reflexive fun mode could do something very special with that material. Mm, absolutely. We look forward to it. And that's Michael Winterbottom and that's our artist profiles for the year done. That was a lot of fun. Um, hopefully we'll do a kind of long-form project next year, Ed. I don't know what, what we're kind of thinking about that, but that could be fun, shouldn't it? Yeah, and it's always nice to know that we have like at least 10 episodes of the year done. Yeah. Because <laughs> then we can only, we only have to scramble for material for the remaining 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although uh, when we do have these things, uh, it was always a mad dash to watch the films we talk about in like the, the 24 <laughs> hours before we record. We are nothing if not completely unprepared always. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or on Stitcher Smart Radio or Player FM. If you do subscribe, leave us a nice review. We would love that very much. We're also on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Find the links through our website, uh, which currently is srspodcast.podbean.com. We'll be back next week with a little Christmas special for you. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. recording and national velvet has just got to the scene where mickey rooney starts saying a baby wants to fuck <laughs> yeah he's just huffing a bunch of gas and <laughs> uh yeah really go staring at a horse yeah as um, elizabeth taylor found that ear in her garden <laughs> yeah, that's how the whole thing gets They're like a horse's ear in the garden yeah. <laughs> yeah. horse's ear horses silently singing roy orbison in italian i mean we've we've just imagined probably the best film of all time um, <laughs> But yeah, one we're not going to see. Okay, cool. Some fucking amazing beard work on display. (laughs) Right, okay, let's do this.